Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chen, and with me I have Kevin Dong, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. All right, hello everyone. My name is Teresa Chan and I am here with Dr. Eve Purdy. Eve, say hi. Hi, everybody. Eve has just finished uh, the Royal College program at Queen's University and is welcoming as new staff there right now. And then she's going to be heading down to the sunnier places in Australia, I guess, uh, and in, in the winter months. She is someone who has studied anthropology while she was a PGY4 resident and has done some really amazing work around culture and teams. And it's been really awesome to watch Eve develop as a provider of healthcare over the years because she has interwoven her digital and professional identities seamlessly and has taken us along on a journey to watch her become the rock star that she is today. So Eve, thanks so much for being awesome and amazing as always. And uh, I'd love to chat with you a little bit about medical anthropology and how it all fits together with emergency medicine. You betcha. Uh, that is quite a lovely uh, introduction. I feel grateful to uh, have had the opportunity to work in the digital space, which has meant that I've been able to learn from all sorts of different people uh, over the years, not just in the physical space that, I, that I'm in. So it has been a pleasure. The uh, My path towards anthropology I guess came from moments as a medical student and as a more junior resident when we were rotating through the hospital. Um, and really what I found was that in each of these new places that I worked, there was a, a new set of kind of unwritten rules that took me a little bit of time to understand. Um, and eventually what I realized these rules boiled down to was culture and, and the culture of different groups within the hospital is, is very strong. And I started to realize was oftentimes a, a source of conflict, but oftentimes was also a source of things going extremely right. Uh, so I wanted to learn a little bit more about culture within the hospital. And so I guess perhaps that makes me more of an organizational anthropologist, uh, perhaps a little bit more than, than a medical anthropologist. But uh, these, these worlds uh, overlap a fair bit. In my day-to-day practice as an emergency physician, I use anthropology all the time. I, I joke with medical students and say that emergency medicine is really an applied social science. <laughs> that is uh, what a bulk of our job is. Yes, we resuscitate people and we a- apply science, but a lot of what we do is try to understand what's important to patients, what they need, and how we can be a part of providing that to them. Um, so I use my, my skills in it as an anthropologist every day in the emergency department. All right. Well, that's very exciting and interesting. Can you tell me about like what that looks like? Uh, because I think I, I get the sense of why it's important. Now, I can't, in my head, 100% understand the day-to-days of what you might have done for one of your studies. So can you pick one of them, and then we can list it in the show notes, people could read the final product. But could you tell us kind of like the backstory, the behind the scenes of that study? 
Yeah. So one of the most exciting studies that I have been involved in was actually uh, a study recently during during our department's response to COVID-19. As I guess we can all appreciate, there was a lot that was changing uh, really quite fast and quite quickly. What we realized was that there was a lot of value and a lot of information on the ground uh, in the people who are working in the department every day. And we wanted to figure out a way to harness that, uh, really that wisdom, um, and supply it back to our leadership team who was making real-time decisions. So we uh, undertook what's called a rapid cycle uh, ethnography Uh, I had a team of physicians and nurses who did daily structured reflections on their shifts that they worked and informal interviews that they did with staff, as well as did a number of formal interviews um, with everybody from uh, environmental services to all the way up to our uh, medical officer of of health in the region to try to understand uh, how the department could adapt and change in a real way. So at the end of every week, we gave a, re- a one-pager report back to our nursing and medical leadership about the pulse of the emergency department. And, you know, some of the stuff they already knew, uh, and this just reinforced what they thought they knew. There was perhaps uh, some uh, some surprises to them uh, that they could perhaps react to a little bit quicker than if this had come up as an issue two or three weeks later. All right. Okay. Interesting. And so during all of that, the informal interviews, they were uh, like the same person multiple times or they were different times, different people, just uh, just kind of trying to make sense of everything or how did that all work? Yeah. So the, f- the formal interviews were 55 unique individuals who were interviewed across this time period. And again, that was a variety uh, of people, what we call, I guess, in qualitative research kind of per course of sampling. So we tried to get a representative look of nurses and residents and paramedics uh, and environmental services. A bit of that was challenging because because it was happening so fast. Part of it was who was available and and how we could could arrange those, those interviews. The informal interviews were much more fluid and were oftentimes on shift. So it would be our research team going to the unit clerk and saying, hey, you know, what do you think we could do a little bit better? What are the challenges that you're facing right now? What are you worried about? And we actually, we actually, for those informal interviews, applied what's a model, probably fairly familiar to everybody. Uh, it's the Fife model uh, that we may learn about uh, in medical school in interviewing patients. Uh, so we, we really just ask people, you know, how do you feel about how things are going right now? Do you have any ideas about what we, uh, what we should be doing? Do you have any fears or worries? And what do you think is going to happen in in the next few weeks and months down the road? Uh, So it's a a really familiar model. It's actually a model designed by an anthropologist. Many people may not know. So the the Fife model, uh, it was originally designed by a a medical anthropologist to try to extract the values and beliefs of patients and marry them with with what we try to do as uh, medical experts. So uh, I, I have a paper in the, brewing in the back of my mind calling Fifing Your Way Through a Pandemic. Um, <laughs> now this, this applied approach to anthropology, meaning we're doing and gathering information and using it in real time, really the, the main purpose of it was to provide information in real time. There's obviously a lot that will come out of this that we can then study a little bit further. A lot of what we were in one of our kind of a priori objectives, so to speak, was actually just to start having real conversations uh, amongst our group. So we had a team of eight people who were 
initiating real discussions in our department. And so in some ways, that was the intervention, was allowing people to feel listened to and heard and knowing that there was people that that they could talk to. Fair. And so um, I think that is a really interesting way to think about it, right? Applied use of the anthropology for real-time change in this case, but it could be real-time change that is a slower burn. And you could be looking at the way that your physician group interacts with each other. It could be the way that your nurses and physicians and healthcare aides all work together to make a regular shift to work, not just like an exceptional one during these uh, pandemic circumstances. And so it can be used for a wider variety. You've used it for other techniques as well in other zones? Yeah, you bet. So we have uh, used anthropology to study the culture and the relationships involved in the care of trauma patients. Uh, When I was doing my master's thesis, we were specifically looking at uh, the interactions and relationships between trauma care providers on the the Gold Coast. Uh, And what we found was quite interesting. Uh, We applied this model called relational coordination, which is actually a model that is used across fields and a lot in healthcare that basically shows that in order for teams to coordinate complex work, they have to have shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect in the context of some high quality communication. And so we actually broke down each of those domains within our trauma service to see what was going well and what was going poorly. And then we presented that information back to the 500 trauma care providers and said, hey, this is interesting. What do you think we could all try to do a little bit better in each of those domains? And that group of trauma care providers came up with about 10 interventions uh, that they wanted to work on to try to make trauma care better. Those were things that were quite simple, like having a direct video feed from the trauma bay to the CT scanner uh, so that we could avoid these conversations of, oh, we're coming to CT, oh, we're not, no, wait, we don't have a line, what's happening? And so that we removed this frustration uh, between our radiographers and our trauma bay because they could just look and see when the patient was coming to the CT scanner. Uh, so that that kind of affected a, a mode of communication in a way that facilitated streamlined care. Uh, There was some kind of more complex interventions. Uh, Our teams realized that in order to set up shared goals for a resuscitation and have some clarity around roles, we needed to do a lot better job of team briefings, ideally before the patient arrived, but if we didn't have notice within the the first one or two minutes. Um, And so we've been working with the trauma service really to try uh, to standardize team briefings in a way that sets up relational coordination for that patient. So small interventions and much, much kind of larger interventions that take a long time to uh, to change. But all of that was done with the trauma teams driving those interventions based on the data that we just presented back to them. Okay, that's very interesting. Okay, so if someone was interested in learning more about the program that you did, because they're thinking about doing this in their special interest time for emergency medicine, uh, what would you point them towards? So I think the very first step in all of this would just be to start reading a little bit in the organizational anthropology almost kind of like pop nonfiction, <laughs> pop nonfiction genre to see if it's something that really does resonate. So there's a couple of books that I think would be just a great starting point if, you, uh, if you're niggling a thought that this might be something that you're interested in. So The Culture Code is an excellent read, uh, as is Tribal Leadership. These two books really were ones that I read early on that made me think, geez, this is something uh, that I want to learn more about and get good at so that I can 
participate in meaningfully studying and working in this field moving forward. So that would be kind of an easy start to read. And then if you are finding, oh, geez, anthropology is super interesting. This is what I want to do. There are a couple of options. I landed on a program through the University of North Texas, of all places, uh, which was kind of a partial in-person, partial online curriculum. It was over three years. So I, from PGY two through four, uh, worked and chipped away at my master's. It was a really flexible program. um, So I could take kind of as many courses as I wanted. If I had a really busy couple of blocks in residency, I didn't have to take any courses. And it really gave a early foundation of anthropology theory, uh, which for me was like a completely new way of seeing the world. I came from an entirely positivist background uh, and all of a sudden was exposed to like postmodernism and realized that there's like maybe kind of multiple different ways to see situations. Uh, and it, it was it was completely mind blowing uh, to me. And so that was kind of the early, early bit. And then as you moved through the program, you really could write papers in the courses or plan your thesis so that it uh, was related to exactly what you wanted to study. Oh, that's very interesting. And were you actually able to do it all in one year or did you space it out a little bit? So the the program is designed to be a minimum of two years. Um, and if you're doing it part time, then, then it can be longer than that. So I did mine over three years and most of the time. So in my first two years was taking, I was usually taking two courses at a time. And then uh, my thesis I did in my fourth year. Uh, And I had my thesis pretty well planned out. And that's when I went down to Australia and I was working part-time clinically and had a lot of time available for, to do that research. And so I was able to to finish and write up my thesis and a couple of papers within that year. All right. That sounds really productive and pretty awesome. And I would note to all the residents out there that is probably not what we necessarily expect, but as an example of a program that you might want to consider, especially now that we've flipped PGY 4 and 5, um, you could definitely, you know, start your master's doing your fifth year when you're transitioning to practice and then roll into a career of research if this is something interesting to you. So don't freak out. You don't have to be <laughs> like Eve and get everything done that way. Totally fine. Definitely something though to keep on your radar if this is something that's interesting and exciting to you because that's at the core of what it is all about. Yeah, I think that's key. Like if I wasn't really excited about this, it would have been awful and would have been a total grind. But for me, you know, coming home in PGY2 uh, instead of watching TV, I would like read a little bit of Borgia or Foucault, <laughs> Foucault uh, and stretch my brain in like a little bit of a different way. And I really like that. And it was it, it almost uh, felt like I was using a different part of my brain and a more kind of creative side of my brain. So, yeah, if you're not passionate about it, don't. Yeah, don't do it. Which is why sure. Culture yeah. Code is a great place to start. Exactly. I think it's important to explore the areas they're interested in. There's multiple different ways to probably tackle the same issue that Eve has kind of uh, looked at from the anthro side, but you could be looking at it from uh, organizational culture, uh, which would be coming from the business world. Uh, there's different people that do organizational design, culture, influence, that kind of thing. Yeah, they're they're coming out from a very different background, right? Yeah, behavioral psychology. Um, organizational yeah. psychology as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think uh, the big thing for me, though, is that having an outside perspective has has been really valuable. Um, and so I, I think 
thinking broad and outside the box about what your research angle could be. Because a lot of what I do is I actually just bring theories and frameworks from anthropology and apply them to our day-to-day job. And people go, oh my gosh, this is wild. This like explains what I'm experiencing. This is amazing. But it's it's not anything super new. It's just using some frameworks that exist to help explain our realities. Um, and that's the type of research that I, that I actually really quite like doing. Uh, but it's a little bit different than the really scientific approach that that we're kind of used to. So there's there's lots that other fields have to add. So think broadly about what that contribution could be. All right. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me. Um, and we will check you next time on Macamerge Podcast. All right. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks to Eve Purdy and Teresa Chan for that segment. As someone that took a very traditional and at times boring path uh, into medicine, it's certainly interesting to hear from people who look at medicine through a different lens, and in this case, uh, from the social sciences, uh, to get an idea of how they view our professional lives as acute care physicians in high-stress, high-volume environments. In the show notes, we're going to include a few of the papers that Purdy mentioned, specifically looking at the, the team briefing and how she has applied that structure to trauma care in Australia while she was there doing her training. We'll also include links to the two books that Dr. Purdy recommended, The Culture Code and Tribal Leadership. Both these books deal with leadership, the culture of groups, and how one can affect change in highly effective organizations. I've had a quick look at the synopsis for each, and one can certainly imagine their applicability to our professional lives where communication, leadership, and teamwork are so vitally important. All right, next up we have a special residence corner section organized by Spencer Sample, as medical students ask our residents questions that are at the forefront of their mind as match day quickly approaches. Hi, everyone. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the residents on the MacEmerge team. So today we're going to be talking about the program and our favorite parts about the program leading up to the rank order list submission deadline. We just thought that this would be a good opportunity for those who are applying for a program or interested in the program to have some of their questions answered before putting us on your rank order list. So we have a couple of our residents here, uh, some familiar faces, Chad and Frank. And then we also have some med students, Etri and uh, Stephanie, who are going to be helping us go through these questions. So to get us started, um, could you guys give us a little bit of insight on what your favorite part about the program is? Yeah, so I'll get us started. I would say the number one thing about the Master Emergency Medicine program is the people. The residents are so kind and so welcoming, and especially as a first-year resident trying to join a program in a pandemic, it's so important to have a good support system. As well, uh, the administration and executive leadership team our considerations under under review and really, really give us strong support throughout very, very challenging residency. But also we have such integral involvement with high acuity patients and very high acuity situations, lots of trauma, lots of sick patients, lots of uh, independence, even from the beginning, that really makes us excellent resuscitationists and clinicians from the get-go. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Frank. I think that everything you said was spot on. The people here at the program really make, uh, you know, coming into the hospital and, and coming in to learn as a resident so worthwhile each and every day. Um, I think one of the best things that I really like is that from residency spot number R1 all the way to R5, everybody knows each other. Everybody is very familiar. We're all on a first name basis. We all get to hang out together. Uh, we all celebrate everyone's personal triumphs. And that just builds a solid core of a residency group that makes this program so amazing. 
Yeah. The only thing I would, I would add is, I mean, the, the city is also a big part of it. The city kind of facilitates our residents getting together. You know, everyone's pretty close to each other. There's plenty of places, especially before COVID happened that we could get together kind of close to the hospitals, close to everyone else. So I think that's a big part of it. Um, and of course the administrative staff and the planning around the program make it a great program for us. Awesome. So I think you guys kind of touched on this, but what sets your program apart from the others? I think a few things uh, set our program apart. And, and again, I think I always preface this whenever I speak about our program versus any other program. I think wherever you go in Canada, you're going to receive an excellent education and, and residency in emergency medicine, wherever you go from East Coast to West Coast. I think some of the few things that that Mac uh, is really excellent in is really concentrating a high level of acuity in terms of patients in a small amount of hospitals. Uh, we have three adult centers here in Hamilton that our residents rotate through, uh, and our catchment area being so large, covering uh, over 2.3 million people, it's it's very concentrated in the presentations that you will see in the emergency department. And by having that access um, to a high variety of patients that walk through the door, as well as that are flown in through the door from our various regional commitments, uh, our residents have the ability to see such a wide variety and learn and really apply what you know we're taking from half day to things that we actually see on the ground floor. Uh, and it makes for an awesome training program. Here at McMaster, we have two of Canada's um, biggest researchers in competency by design who are really making efforts to make sure that our education in this newer format is top notch and are listening to our concerns and are really revamping how we're evaluated through this new metric, which really helps us get the most out of our time in residency while it's making sure that we cross off all of our EPAs as we go through all the different years of residency. Okay, and what are some ways that your program is open to change? Yeah, so I, I think this, I mean, ties into the last question uh, as well. And I think that one of the things that sets our program apart from others, I mean, obviously I've never been to any of the other programs, but I think one of these things is how our program is open to change. And we just have this environment where if the residents have any issues or anything that they're looking to change, the program is definitely willing to listen to us and is actually has a track record of making changes. Um, and that's really encouraging for us. And I think should be really encouraging for people interested in the program because it shows that during your five years in the program, if you think something needs to be different, then it will get addressed and it can be changed. I mean, obviously there's some limitations based on program requirements and degree requirements, but the program certainly open to change and has shown change. And one of the examples that first comes to mind is with some of the scheduling at some of our hospital sites. And we have, we've had a recent change in the scheduling where residents wanted their shifts to line up more with the staff shifts at one of our hospital sites. And that was something that the program took into consideration and made that change for us. And that's led to a lot of benefits for us and that we get to spend more time with one staff um, and less time switching between the two. So I think that's just a really valuable example of how, how it's changed. And, you know, there's a lot of other little things, but that's one of the more significant ones that shows that we are open to change. I think to, to just um, snowball off of that, Spencer, our admin, as well as our program directors are always available by phone call or text. Uh, we have multiple ways that we can 
uh, affect change throughout the program, whether that be uh, changing uh, a certain rotation that our resident group was not feeling that our educational goals were not being met. We're enhancing a rotation so that our educational goals and our, our subsequent EPAs can be further met. Um, one thing that comes to mind is our recent change in the trauma rotation here at uh, here in our program. We've recently transitioned uh, to a, a sole sub-TTL role where we get to play the part of the TTL for the duration of the entire block. On top of that, even in our half-day curriculums, when uh, COVID hit, our, we were able to pivot very quickly on providing COVID-related information, caring for patients with COVID, simulations on how to put on PPE, how to doff PPE, and then even things as crucial as ECD, ECG teaching. We were able to incorporate an entire ECG curriculum into our, our academic half day. So being able to pivot on the fly, really listening to our residents, our program directors, uh, both Lee and Kelly are excellent at, at transitioning and really giving us uh, the change that we wanna see in our program. And what does your schedule look like as a Mac Emerge resident? Um, so as a first year, you start off the year on emergency medicine on your very first uh, time being a resident. So you are slowly ease into the demands of residency. Then we start off service for four blocks. And these four blocks can include general surgery with trauma, internal medicine, obstetrics, anesthesia, pediatric, and pediatric emerge. Uh, then over the winter break, we come back for three more months of emergency medicine to get us through those tough winters. And then we finish off with four more blocks uh, off service. So that's what your first year would look like. This is all while having an academic half days on Thursday mornings, and then sometimes some academic half days and Thursday afternoons as well in your first year. Second year is all emergency medicine all the time, 13 blocks of it, uh, with additional ultrasound-specific training and EMS-specific training integrated into some of the blocks of your second year. Third year, you learn how to be a critical care specialist while working at many of the different ICUs that we have at the general, as well as the CCU, PICU, trauma unit, and time to explore your own interests in uh, electives. And then fourth year is your time now where you will be preparing for your Royal College exam while working emergency medicine. And then fifth year will be kind of growing your own practice and focusing on your area of focus competency, where you pick something that you're interested in or another degree or something along those lines that you can see yourself being a staff in and using that time to really see what you as a staff position, what that looks like for your life. Yeah. Thanks, Frank. That's actually a really good summary. I would also add just like on a weekly basis, the goal of the program while on emerge is that you have around 16 shifts a month. So that might be on average, four shifts a week. And then on Thursday mornings, we have our half day from 8.30 to 12. And then depending on the year that you're in, you might have an additional afternoon or morning of simulation or other sorts of teaching during the week. Um, so it makes about one day of teaching per week and around four or more or less shifts per week as well. Okay, as medical students, we are definitely interested in this question, but what do you think makes an applicant competitive for this program? Yeah, so I think, I mean, this is a question that we get a lot, and I think our program directors have been pretty vocal about this in the past. So I think it's, I mean, we have less of a decision on which students are chosen for the program, but I think the general consensus and chat and Frank, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that 
typically programs will look for, I mean, first and foremost, students that are interested in Emerge, um, interested in the city that the program is in. And then in terms of, you know, I'm sure you're thinking a little bit about what I have to do as a med student to to get into the program. I think having some form of leadership, some form of uh, teamwork and and research on your resume would be helpful. Now, I don't think that everyone has to have all of those things. I think if you have a strong front in two of those things, that would be pretty helpful. So I think a lot of people wonder, do I have to do research? And I think the answer is you don't have to, but if you don't, then I would make sure you have strong applications and the rest of those things that I mentioned, um, because certainly not everyone in our program has has done research in the past. To be honest, a lot of people have kind of dipped their toes in research and then have focused more on the teamwork and leadership type fronts um, and kind of the success in, in academics and that kind of thing. Um, so I think any mixture of the three with particular strong focus on maybe two of those things, what would make someone competitive? And that would be on top of for sure, knowing that you want to do emergency medicine and knowing that you want to do it in the in the cities that you're applying to. I don't know, Chad and Frank, if you have anything else to add to that. Yeah, just to add to uh, add to a bit of that, I completely agree, Spencer. I think being a well-rounded applicant is probably one of the most important things that you can bring to our program. Uh, we recognize that not everybody does have access to research opportunities. Uh, some people might have more work experience than research. Some people might have more leadership or volunteer experience as opposed to work experience or research experience. I think the most important thing is that I think everybody's an amazing student uh, and we get tons of amazing medical students that apply to our program, but we know that everybody's an amazing medical student. What we want to see is what else um, have you been able to contribute to, to medicine? And then what can you contribute to the field of emergency medicine at the residency level and above? And whether that be through you know education, leadership, communication, uh, teaching, whether that be through wet lab research, you know, the, the opportunities are endless, but I think it's, it's up to, you know, that medical student to really show why they're interested in emergency medicine and how they can contribute at the next level and beyond that through their various avenues. Uh, and that, that's something that I really like about our programs that we do take uh, applicants from all different types of backgrounds. And I think when you're showing your, showing that on the application, it's important to really speak about those things that you might have done that are different than somebody else. And, and that, I think will help you stand out. And lastly, just to add on to that, no one expects you to be a clinical expert when you are in a medical, when you are a medical student going through your final year applying to CARMS. That's not what we need. What we really look for is someone who's hardworking, who really cares about their patients and their learning. Someone who takes the time to really ask those good questions, contribute to the team, follow their patients, and be a good team player. These are the kind of behaviors that you need to exhibit when you're on elective or when you're working with people at any point in your clerkship, because everyone knows one another in medicine, to show that you are an exceptional medical student, be keen, be helpful, be supportive. And really those behaviors when you're working clinically will be the things that carry you forward um, and to make sure that you are an excellent fit, not only for our residency program, but for many residency programs across Canada. Yeah, the only other thing I would add is it's been a little bit hard this year. I know people, some of the people listening are going to be choosing their rank order list and have never been to some of the schools that they're choosing because of COVID and not being able to do electives. And 
I know I've had a lot of questions about how am I supposed to be competitive in a program if I've never been there, never met the people. And I think this year, I mean, everyone's either done or going through interviews at this point, and we've all gotten to meet those people and see how you are during those interviews. So that's definitely important. But, you know, asking questions, talking to residents and maybe joining journal clubs or academic half days just to kind of show your interest is another thing that people have been able to do during this time. But I guess what I want to really say is that during this time, we realize that it's been difficult to show competitiveness this year and people are worried if that puts them on the back foot. But I would almost argue that it kind of evens the playing field a little bit. If most people haven't been able to do an elective in one place, I think it kind of puts everyone more on an even step. So I've just trying to have been encouraging to people to not really worry about that as much this year, but uh, it's definitely something that we're aware of and we feel for you because, you know, this is kind of an unprecedented time to be a med student and be applying and ranking all these <laughs> schools that you've never been to. That was definitely super reassuring to hear. Um, on a more personal note, uh, what do you like about the city of Hamilton? I love Hamilton. I, I mean, I've, I've been here now. I did undergrad here. I did med school here. And now officially halfway through residency here. And I think the city has definitely changed from when I started undergrad uh, way back in 2010 to now. A few things that, that really jump out to me is number one, the the nature. You're, you're in a city, but you're surrounded by nature. You're surrounded by beautiful hiking trails. We're literally known as the city of waterfalls. I think there's something like over a hundred waterfalls in Hamilton. And it's such a beautiful city to just get out and explore. You get to be outdoors all the time. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't call it a mountain because I I know our our counterparts over in BC have real mountains, but Hamilton Mountain Hamilton's mountains pretty cool too. Uh, on top of that, the bar scene, the restaurant scene, everything here is just developing, and you know there's always a new restaurant popping up. It seemed like before the pandemic, on a monthly basis and. It's really cool because we had a we had a monthly dinner club. The uh, a bunch of the residents would get together every month and go out and try one of the new restaurants that were popping up across the city. And uh, I, I really found that that was something cool to get around and explore in Hamilton. To add to that, I'd say another one of Hamilton's strengths is our beautiful waterfront, which extends all the way from here in Hamilton all the way across to Burlington. On a nice sunny day, it's so nice to go hang out by the water. Just enjoy it. Just enjoy the breeze and the atmosphere. Get some exercise in if you're into biking, running, rollerblading, or if you just want to sit and enjoy the ice cream too. That's totally possible. As well with Hamilton, we are uh, more and more becoming quite trendy. So all these small cafes and little places to study or read are were popping up, which really lends itself well to if you just want to read quietly with a nice like latte on like a rainy Sunday afternoon, you can totally do that in a very picturesque area. Uh, and lastly, the diversity in downtown Hamilton is exceptional. Uh, I love grocery shopping and some of our downtown favorites. We have an Asian market. We have a whole other indoor market. There's many different places to get lots of great food here in Hamilton. And so it's really one of my favorite places to go to. Yeah, I think for me, it's all the things that people mentioned. I think also... Like it's a good place to, well, I think it's a good place to raise a family. A lot of our residents have kids and they, they seem happy with the area. You know, there's good schools, good things for the kids to do. The other thing I would say is I love coffee. So all the coffee shops that Frank kind of alluded to are a big thing for me. And then from more of a kind of clinical perspective, I think Chad mentioned this a little bit earlier, but, you know, Hamilton is a pretty large city, but it provides us with the opportunity to 
to have a large city, have a large population of patients in the city and a large catchment area, but not at the same level as a city like some of the other larger cities where there's too many learners and you kind of get diluted in that kind of setting. So I think we have a perfect combination of a large population, a diverse population. We get a lot of sick patients from our large catchment area, but we also don't have, you know, the dilution of learners that some of the other places seem to have. Okay. And then just bringing it to our final question. um, What are some ways that your program allows or encourages equity, diversity, and inclusion? I think our program, you know, definitely with the addition to our academic half day, for instance, uh, one of our, our current R5s has definitely spearheaded and is actually spearheading this across the all PGME programs here at Mac. She's, she's actually introducing an entire Indigenous curriculum into both uh, McMaster's emergency medicine. And that's something that goes now the entire year at various different points. But she's actually been able to, to bring that curriculum to a much larger scale at the PGME level. And I think you know, our program has, has definitely always taken a commitment. Um, and it's, it, I will say that it is resident driven because it's something that is very important to us as residents. And when we are able to, to bring our thoughts to our, our leadership, they, they are always willing to, to entertain how we can promote better diversity and equity, uh, throughout the process. I think this year, something that I, I really took from how we were able to promote even uh, an even further commitment to that is when we were doing our, our our interviews and our applications up front, we actually were given bias training. We were given lots of content before even going into the interviews about, and, and these were you know all evidence based in terms of reducing our biases uh, and being uh, being better able to uh, equitably do interviews. So that was something that I really enjoyed as a as an interviewer going into the process that our program was committed to to doing that. A couple other things I would mention. Our program is very vocal within the resident group about inclusion and diversity. And we are willing to write letters, sign documents kind of based on our program. And people are very involved in that kind of thing. And recently, there was a committee formed within the program called the IDEA Committee, which is Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Anti-Racism Committee. Um, So they've been spearheading a lot of these activities and it's very early on, but this committee is also looking to create a curriculum within the program to increase the residents' awareness of that and make more more formal education around those concepts. So, you know, I don't know what the status of this in other programs is, but it's definitely something that McMaster is aware of and working towards strongly to including this officially in our curriculum. Again, that's kind of an early thing, but I I would hope that this could be implemented for the next year or maybe the year after that. So it's not only something that we're very aware of, but something that we're working to implement within our program. And I would say lastly is that this idea of equity, diversity, and inclusion extends into our staff on faculty with a number of staff being heavily involved with advocacy for our patients with no fixed address, for more affordable housing, uh, for advocacy for the homeless here in Hamilton, as well as we have a number of award-winning staff whose work advocating for vaccine information sharing to minority populations um, has been recognized across Canada for their effort and who have done a great job about bringing 
uh, information and support for minority communities who need these vaccinations as they're the most high risk and making their efforts count for helping our patients in the long run. So we have a very, very strong mandate and a very strong atmosphere to help foster further programs and forays into uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion here at McMaster. Awesome. So thank you guys so much for answering all those questions. Hopefully that gives everyone a good image of the program as they go into selecting their rankings. Thank you guys for having us. Thank Thanks you for, so much. Thanks for being here. I would I would also just add a little plug for Chad and myself and Frank. If you want to check out our um, video that we released this year, it also details some of the things we talked about here and gives some images of the city as well. So we can put the link for that in the show notes for the podcast if you want to check that out thanks everyone for listening to this month's resident corner and we hope you enjoyed the episode thank you for tuning in to this episode of the mac emerge podcast we hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region remember we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Mac Emerge out! <laughs>